Thank you, thank you. I took a bath this morning and everything. I couldn't figure out why nobody's sitting up in the front. <laughs> well, if you know anything about my adventurous wife, uh, you won't be at all surprised that she celebrated a few years ago her 50th birthday by skydiving. We drove out to the Elsinore airstrip, and uh, Margie was first given a 30-minute ground school before boarding the plane. And she was, uh, basically said she was excited about falling from 10,000 feet. And the instructor corrected her and informed her that, her that it wasn't called falling, it was called skydiving. Falling is accidental. Skydiving is intentional. There's an intentionality about falling out of a perfectly good airplane. But part of her instruction included certain rules, like don't curl up in the fetal position. When you're falling, you'll slip out of your harness. Uh, arch your back, hold your arms out so that you fly uh, in a correct position. Stick your legs out in front of you when you come in for the, for the final landing. Um, and that explain, no explanation necessary for that. And always do what the jump master tells you to do immediately. There was another rule I saw. It said no pets allowed on your jump. Um, now these rules are not negotiable. Uh, they are absolutes, especially if you want to live. Author Clark Cothran invites us to imagine another kind of skydiving experience. He says, when you arrive, a smiling instructor begins strapping a parachute on your back as you go out to the plane, idling outside. And over the plane's engine noise, the instructor yells, we here at the relativist skydiving school believe there are many ways to get from the airplane to the ground. Uh, we respect everyone's desire to skydive, and we don't believe in absolute rules. Just listen to your inner voice, uh, respond honestly to your feelings, and have a memorable experience, and we'll see you when you get to the ground. Now, if that was your experience, would you still skydive? Probably not. Most people who go skydiving really do like the strict, absolute, and non-negotiable rules. Why? Because you can't be a relativist at skydiving. The rules are there for good reason, and when we know those reasons and we know those rules, we embrace them readily. Why is that? Because as someone once said, you really don't need a parachute to skydive. You need a parachute if you want to skydive twice. That's important. But let's suppose a skydiver at 10,000 feet decides, uh, well, he tells the rest of the group, you know what, I'm not going to use a parachute. I like the freedom. I don't like the constraint of that chute on my back, and so I just want to experience the freedom of that and jump out without one. Well, the restraint of that, for that skydiver is basically a greater law, and it's called the law of gravity. They say the terminal velocity of a human body is about 95 miles per hour, and hitting the ground at that speed, you can do some damage. It's only when the skydiver chooses the constraint of the parachute that he or she can really experience the exhilaration and the freedom of the jump. Well, so it is with God's word. It acts in much the same way. The moral laws of constraint or restraint really are absolutely necessary to enjoy the exhilaration of the freedom. In fact, every negative command in God's word, every thou shalt not, uh, basically has behind it two positives, to provide and to protect. Every negative command comes with two positives, again, to provide and to protect. Why? Because God loves us so much, and so we call his word, the Bible, God's love letter to us. It's that love relationship that we have with God. And, and in that love relationship, the means are just as important as the ends. In other words, 
Uh, God is as interested in the process as he is in the product. He's as concerned about the journey that we're on as well as the destination. And so he graciously gives us his word, the Bible, as our guide. It's our tech support. It's our owner's manual, so to speak, on how to know him, how to love him, and how to live a life that's pleasing to him. Well, last week we looked at some of the reasons why we believe this book called the Bible is God's word. It's been called, among other things, God's road, road map to Christian living. But like any road map, can we be certain that it's going to take us to the right destination? How can we trust it? How do we know this book that's 2,000 years old and written by men? How do we know it's reliable? How do we know it's dependable? How do we know it hasn't been changed? How do we know there's not mistakes in it? How do we know it hasn't been altered in some way, shape, or form? Well, what I want to do this morning and what we did last week is to continue to give you a greater confidence, a deeper assurance in the trustworthiness and the reliability of this book that we call the Bible. And I want to give a few reasons why this morning you can bet your life on it. You can bet your destiny on this book. Last week we were reminded how God has given this book, the Holy Scriptures, as our reference point. It's the way we gauge our life. Our, again, it's our our owner's manual. It's God's letter, letter of love to us. But we really showed how the problem today, even among many believers, is they don't have the confidence in God's word. They don't have the conviction that this truly is the way that God speaks to us today. And so people will often question the, the reliability and the, and the uh, relevancy of the Bible. Does God speak to us in the 21st century through this book? He absolutely does. Why use this book as our reference point? Why, why is it so critical that we have an ultimate reference point, a solid system of beliefs? Why is it so important that we have a, a firm foundation upon which to stand? Well, we showed that what we believe, what we really truly believe, determines three huge things about us. First of all, we pointed out last week, what you believe determines your identity. What you believe up here determines who you are. Proverbs 23.7 puts it this way, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. You see, what you believe, what you value, what you have convictions about determines your character, it determines your identity, it determines who you are. What you believe determines your identity. Secondly, what you believe determines your activity. In other words, what you believe determines what you do, good or bad. Jesus points out in Mark chapter 7, Verse 21, that what you believe in your heart, what you believe in your mind, really determines what you do, good or bad. And so everything we do has its roots in what we believe down in the most inner recesses of who we are. And then finally, we pointed out last week that what you believe determines your destiny. The Bible makes it clear in passages like Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we looked at that, that what we believe up here really determines where we're going to spend the next trillion years on into eternity. Think about that. And so again, what you believe determines your identity. What you believe determines your activity. What you believe determines your destiny. And so it's absolutely essential. It's critically important that we really examine and affirm the reference point that we have called the Bible, the Word of God. Why do we believe it? Why do we believe this book is everything we need to know about faith and practice and is how we hear from God? Well, first of all, we pointed out last week that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And we basically pointed out that, okay, that sounds good. Just because something claims to be the Word of God doesn't make it the Word of God, right? If the LA Times came out tomorrow morning 
Front page said the LA Times is the word of God. They make that declaration. That doesn't necessarily make it the word of God, just because you say it. But that's where we have to start. Why? We need to understand that the Bible is the word of God, not just because we say so. There wasn't a committee in the first century that got together and said, hey, guys, this is really good stuff. What do you say we call it the word of God? All in favor say aye, aye, it passes. That didn't happen. The Bible claims to be the word of God apart from what anybody else might say about it. And we looked at three pa uh, basic passages last week. First of all, 2 Timothy 3.16, where it states this, all scripture is inspired by God. We unpack that word inspired. It means theonoustos, God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. He's the source. And it's profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, basically, why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we unpack that passage. We talked about the four things that God's word does for us. First of all, teaching. It imparts positive truth. Secondly, a reproof. It imparts negative truth. Thirdly, correction. It tells us where we get off the path. And then fourthly, training in righteousness. How to get back on that path and how to keep on going. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We looked at the second key passage in, our, in, in the Bible, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets, or to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so the Bible claims to be an accurate and authoritative record of God's word spoken through the prophets of the Old Testament and through his Son in the New Testament. Third passage we looked at last week is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Where Peter says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so we discover in these and in countless other passages in God's Word how the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. And then secondly, we saw how the Bible not only claims to be the Word of God, it seems to be the word of God. What do you mean seems to be? Well, by all outward appearance and indicators, it is apparent that this book really is the word of God. We saw how incredibly unique this book is, like no other book in the history of humankind. Unique in its publication, first book ever uh, published, 1450, uh, the Gutenberg Press. It was the Bible. It's unique in its unity. It's not just one book, it's a library of books. It's actually 66 books in the Bible, uh, written by more than uh, 40 writers over a period of about 15 or 1600 years. We looked at the fact that the Bible was written at different uh, time periods, on different continents, in different places and languages and times and moods and styles and backgrounds, and yet they all agree. And that's amazing. The Bible's going from one place to another, and it's almost as if a mastermind controlled it all. It's all harmonious. We call that inspiration. God breathed. It's his word. For example, we see how in any study of the Bible, as you, as you look at the whole, there's a wonderful flow of God's grace. In the Old Testament, salvation is prepared. Guess what? Christ is coming. That's the whole message of the Old Testament. In the, in the Gospels, salvation is effected. Christ has come. In the, in the Acts, salvation is preached. In the letters, salvation is explained. And in Revelation, salvation is fulfilled. There's a flow to it. And so this Bible is incredibly unique in its unity. 
And then thirdly, we saw how the Bible is unique in its indestructibility. People down throughout the uh, centuries have tried to destroy Christianity and destroy the Bible. And yet God, we showed, has graciously preserved his book for every generation. As someone once pointed out, the Bible is an anvil that's worn out many a hammer. And so the Bible claims to be the word of God. The Bible seems to be the word of God. And this morning what I want to do is go further and, and explain how I really firmly believe, I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible proves to be the word of God. Now what do we mean prove to be? You know, what does that mean? Well, the evidence is overwhelming. In areas of science and history and archaeology and fulfilled prophecy, the Bible proves to be the word of God. Now we need to understand a few things up front. First of all, the Bible is not a history textbook. But where it touches on history, it's absolutely accurate. It's not a science book, but where it touches on science, it is absolutely 100% accurate. It's not a, a, a medical textbook, but where it touches on areas of medicine, it is absolutely accurate. Let me give you a couple of examples. A few years ago, Time Magazine ran a, a cover story that asked the question, what does science uh, tell us about God? I think a better title would have been, What Does God Tell Us About Science? The word science simply means knowledge. But science, uh, scientist Adolf Huxley made this bold statement. He said, modern science makes it impossible to believe in a personal God. The argument goes something like this. As science advances and as things get more verified in the laboratory, the necessity for God to explain all these mysteries out there, the, necessary, the necessity for God is eliminated. And so there are those who emphatically state that you cannot believe in the Bible and in science. You cannot believe in God and in science. And yet, what is science? Uh, again, the word simply means knowledge. And so science is really the knowledge or the study of what we believe to be God's creation. So science is good. <laughs> there are even some, though, that will assert that there are contradictions, basically, uh, between science and what the Bible uh, teaches. Some will argue the Bible makes scientific blunders. There are mistakes in the Bible. And usually people that say that, the vast majority have never read the Bible. They just heard that from somebody else. In fact, the only time a conflict takes place is when science tries to be something that it's not. When it tries to be a religion by explaining origin and destiny. You see, science can only deal with things that are observable. Science can only deal with things that are reproducible. And so scientists are merely speculating when they start talking about origin and destiny. That's becoming more of a religion. Let me give you an example. John Lennox has written a book called God's Undertaker. He writes this. He gives a great illustration. He says, let us imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake. And we take it along to be analyzed by a group of the world's top scientists. The nutrition scientists will tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. The biochemist will inform us about the structure of the proteins and the fats, etc. The physicist will, uh, will be able to analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles. And the mathematicians will no doubt offer a set of elegant equations to describe the movement or the behavior of those particles. We have certainly been given a description of how the cake was made and how its various ingredients relate to one another. But suppose I now ask this assembled group of experts a final question. Why was the cake made? Why? The grin on Aunt Matilda's face shows that she knows the answer because she made it for a purpose. But all the scientists in the world are not able to answer the question. And that is no insult to their disciplines to state that their incapacity to answer it. Their disciplines cannot answer the why questions connected with the purpose of why the cake was made. 
In fact, the only way we can ever get an answer is to ask Aunt Matilda to reveal it to us. And if she does not disclose the answer to us, the plain fact is that no amount of scientific analysis will, en will enlighten us. There is no way. Harvard astrophysicist Owen Gengrich, who happens to be an evangelical Christian, admits, he says, I passionately believe in a universe with purpose, though I cannot prove it. Nobody can. You see, true science can only deal with the present and then rely upon some past experience. And so the real conflict is not between uh, science and scripture. Uh, the real if issue, the real conflict is always a moral one. It's between man and God. It is seldom an intellectual problem. It is almost always a moral problem. A person doesn't want to deal with a God who holds them accountable to live their lives accordingly. Romans 1.18 spells it out. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clear, clearly seen, being evidence through what has been made, and so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, and they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of, a, of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so again, it's seldom an intellectual problem that anybody might have. It's always, nearly always, a moral problem. Now the Bible, again, is obviously not a science textbook, but where it touches on science, it is absolutely accurate. For example, let me give you a few uh, samples here. For, you might recall that a number of years ago, uh, Pope John Paul II made a speech that vindicated Galileo. 400 years ago, you might remember, Galileo was uh, put under house arrest and he was threatened with excommunication because he believed he projected uh, teachings that were against the church orders. And the teachings included the fact that the earth revolved around the sun. Oh my gosh, that's heresy. Today, the Pope admits that back in the 17th century, theologians failed to distinguish what from what the Bible actually says to what, how the church actually interpreted it. In fact, what Galileo discovered was really in the Bible the whole time. Isaiah 40, 22 describes God as the one who, who sits above the vault of the earth. That word vault in the Hebrew means sphere. Early man thought that the earth was flat. Muhammad believed that it was on the back of an elephant. Early Hindu tradition held that the earth rested on the back of a turtle. And when we had earthquakes, that was the turtle moving. That was when the uh, elephant was, I don't know, taking a nap, whatever it was. But Job 26.7 basically declares that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. The Bible proves to be the word of God. Meteorology is concerned about the circulation of the atmosphere. In the 17th century, Galileo discovered that uh, the winds have certain circuits and they go in patterns around the earth. Well, back in Ecclesiastes 1.6, it points out that blowing toward the north and turning toward the south, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses, the wind returns. Galileo also showed that the air had, uh, or the wind has weight. Now, Job 28.25 tells us that God imparts weight to the wind. Uh, up until the 17th century, 
uh, man thought the earth was a flat disk surrounded by the river uh, Oceania. And everything circled, basically circled the earth, and we were inside sort of like a glass bowl with uh, stars maybe glued onto the outside surface. In fact, up to the 16th century, they believed that there were only 1,022 stars, according to Heperditus. And then another astronomer came along named Tolone, and he said, no, 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 no. It's not 1,022 stars. He says, I count 1,056 stars. Then the father of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, corrected them both. He said, no. He said there are actually 1,055 stars. Scientists today say that there are over 100 billion stars just in our galaxy, and we have no idea how many galaxies there are. Probably over 100 billion. Over 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. We cannot count them. Jeremiah 33:22 tells us that. It says, as the host of heaven cannot be counted, just like the stars cannot be counted, the sand of the sea cannot be measured. Jeremiah 31, 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel. In other words, that's never going to happen. You're never going to be able to count the number of stars any more than you can count the number of uh, sand uh, particles on the, on the beaches of the world. The Bible proves to be the word of God. Up until the 18th century, uh, hygiene conditions were horrible. Excrement was just tossed out into the middle of the streets. And it was a heyday for flies and rats that spread intestinal diseases that wiped out hundreds of thousands of people. Diseases like cholera, dysentery, and typhoid fever. Well, God had the answer all along if they had just read their Bibles. Back in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord clearly instructed the nation of Israel with these words. You shall have a place outside the camp and go out there. And you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be that when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Now that's in the Bible. Practical instruction from God's Word. One medical historian who read the passage admitted, this was certainly a primitive measure, but an effective one which indicates advanced ideas of sanitation. It was in 18 or 1623 that... William Harvey discovered that the circulatory system of our body basically was the key to life. In other words, basically blood was what kept you alive. Before, you got, before that, you, if you got sick, what did they do? They took blood out of you. They used leeches. They, they cut you. I just finished a book on George Washington on his deathbed, the poor guy. They were trying to cut him and bleed him. And, and finally, at the end, one of the last things he said is, gentlemen, quit torturing me and let me go. Now we give people blood. Why? Because we know that life is in the blood. Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Then there's the universe itself. Physicists today have observed and discovered that the, that the universe actually seems calibrated for the existence of life. We've noted with alarm that uh, scientists say that if the earth was just a few miles closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If the earth was further away in its circular uh, uh, orbit, uh, we would uh, freeze to death. Physicist Robert Wright states, if the forces of gravity were pushed upward just a bit, stars would burn out faster. If the relative masses of protons and neutrons changed just a hair, he says stars might never be born, since the hydrogen they eat wouldn't exist. The design of the universe uh, argues strongly for a designer. Paul Davies, a steadfast evolutionist, says this, The very fact that the universe is creative, that the laws have permitted complex structures to emerge and develop to the point of consciousness, in other words, that the universe has organized its own self-awareness, 
It is for me a powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. Yale physicist Henry Marganeau states that there's only one convincing answer for the intricate laws that exist in the universe, and that is creation by an omnipotent and omniscient God. Genesis 1.1 flatly declares, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible proves to be the word of God. Historians for years emphatically uh, stated that the Hittites mentioned in the Old Testament never could have really existed, or if they did, they were just a small band of people. They never could have done the things that the Old Testament said that they did. And then a few years ago, they discovered some clay tablets. It showed that these Hittites were a powerfully advanced civilization. And now today in Harvard, you can actually take a class on the Hittite language. They didn't believe Solomon could be all that wealthy until they uncovered his vast horse stables and his complex seaports. In John chapter 5, it tells us the account of how Jesus healed a lame man. The Bible describes this lame man as, as, as lying beside a five-sided pool just outside the sheep gate of Jerusalem. Paul states that this, or John states that this is where uh, all the people would gather around this pool in order to be healed of their various diseases. And since no other historical document shows anything about this pool, there's no other evidence, there's no other, other archaeological dig that showed or proved that that existed, they thought, well, John just made that up until just a few years ago. Someone dug where John said this place was, and sure enough, they found a five-sided, five-sided pool. I actually saw it a few years ago when I was in Israel. The pool actually contains little shrines to the, uh, basically, the, basically the Greek gods of healing. Little shrines, little, uh, little knickknacks in there, and it showed that people gathered there that were sick and were looking for healing, hoping for healing. And so John had not made it up after all. Joshua 11 tells how the Israelites burned the city of Hazar to the ground, burned it with fire, it says. Archaeologists never found any evidence for that. They found the dig, they, they excavated the area, and there was no evidence that there had been a fire until they dug a little bit deeper, found a palace the remnants of a palace, and basically uh, the palace was destroyed, it says here, by archaeologist James Hoffmeyer. It was destroyed in such an inferno that many of the bricks had turned to glass. Well, Joshua 11 uh, described how the Israelites had burned Hazar with fire, and it fits the evidence. Historians have always doubted whether Israel was really slaves, were they really slaves in Egypt for 400 years? Skeptics figured the account of, uh, of the Exodus was a fabrication. It was a legend. And then uh, a few years ago, Time Magazine states that Frank Yurko, an Egyptologist at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, used hieroglyphic clues from a monolith to identify figures on a Lexer wall as ancient Israelites. It celebrates a military victory by the Pharaoh. It said, Israel is laid waste. It suggested that the Israelites were a distinct population more than 3,000 years ago, and not just because the Bible says so. For centuries, skeptics claimed that David never really existed, that he was just a legend, sort of like Paul Bunyan. If he was Israel's greatest king, then why weren't there any other records of his existence in history? And then all of a sudden, 1993, archaeologists from the Hebrew University announced that they had found an inscription bearing the phrase, House of David and King of Israel. The writing dated to the 9th century B.C. It described a victory by a neighboring king over Israel. Now there are two. They found another one. Two 9th century references to David's dynasty just 
that are outside of the biblical record. The evidence is proof positive that David was not a legend. He really did exist. I could go on. There are dozens and dozens of examples in my files, and if you want to do some reading, I can recommend various books on the subject. But Nelson Gluick, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, he wrote this. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted or converted a biblical reference. He goes on to assert his almost incredible, uh, uh, the incredible accurate historical memory of the Bible, and particularly so, he says, when it is fortified by archaeological fact. The Bible proves to be the Word of God on every level. I don't have time this morning to go into the hundreds of biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled down throughout history. I'll save that for another message, but suffice it to say that there are over a thousand separate fulfilled prophecies, 25% of the Old Testament, and several hundred that refer just to Jesus alone that have either been fulfilled or will be fulfilled at his second coming. The Bible proves to be the word of God. Conclusively, not for everyone. There will always be an element of faith involved, accepting the Bible as the very word of God. But Charles Ryrie from Dallas Seminary states this. He says, the Bible has proved its reliability in so many ways and in so many areas. It is worthy of our trust. He adds, while man's knowledge has often proved unreliable and at best limited. Well, let's apply this this morning. <laughs> Paul instructed uh, a young man by the name of Timothy, and he said this. He said, retain the, the standard of words, sound words, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to us. Paul uses two phrases here to kind of sum up our application here this morning. Retain the standard and guard the treasure. What does it mean to retain the standard? It means to keep the pattern, keep the pattern of sound teaching. In other words, maintain what God has said. We are to be people who carry a high standard of the word, not just know the word of God, but to lift it up and to apply it daily. Let me encourage you to commit yourself to the goal of retaining God's standard in your life, no matter what. Be like the Bereans. I love the Bereans in the, in the book of Acts. They heard the Apostle Paul teach, and they thought, you know, uh, that sounds good, but let's check it out. And they went back to the Old Testament to find out if what he had said was true, and it was. But they didn't even take the Apostle Paul's word for it. They wanted to check it out through the Scriptures. Listen, when you need comfort, go to the Bible. When you need direction, go to the Bible. When you need answers, go to the Bible. Listen, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and Oprah, they might have some good advice, but they are not God's revealed word. Do some digging. Look for gold. Discover the treasure. And when you do, you will have a spiritual high like nothing else. Paul's second critical and crucial phrase to Timothy in verse 14 is to guard the treasure. Guard the treasure, he says. That implies two things about God's word. Number one, that it's valuable, it's a treasure, and secondly, it's under attack. It's valuable because it is the precious word of God. It gives meaning and purpose to life. It provides the ultimate focus that we need in the present. It gives us hope that we need, desperately need, for the future. But Paul also says it's under attack. It needs to be guarded. Why? Because the enemy will do everything he can to basically destroy its message. And so Paul warns Timothy he says, preach the word, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Rebuke, uh, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. <laughs> they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. People today love to have their ears tickled, don't they? And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. 2 Timothy 2.1 You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are called to embed the word of God into the very fabric of our DNA. Are you passing it on? Many of you know God's word. Are you passing it on? Are you discipling others? Are you, are you teaching and mentoring other people? Are you retaining? Are you guarding the standard, the treasure that God has given to us? Where do we begin? Well, let me encourage you. <laughs> Join us this year on uh, Route 66, a journey through the Bible. As I mentioned last week, I introduced it. We're basically starting in September. We're starting in a couple of weeks. We're going to go through one book of the Bible every week. We're going to do that for one year. And basically, like, uh, like an airplane flies at 37,000 feet, we're going to kind of get an overview of the entire book. And then I'm going to dive down and take one passage and unpack it from that book that basically gives the message and the overall theme of that particular book. And the goal basically is not just to plow through the Bible, but to get an overview of the entire Word of God from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. We're encouraging you to get involved in a, in a life group this year. Uh, the Bible is a communal book. It's meant to be studied and applied in the context of relationships, in community. And so we're asking our life groups to go through with us and to look at the questions and look at the material and dig down deep and, and understand what God's big story is, what his redemptive purpose is down throughout history. And then we're going to ask each one of you individually to read through God's word starting in September. I'm going to be giving you a little uh, bookmark uh, next week or the week after, and it's going to be able to, you'll be able to check off some chapters as you go through God's word. Three or four chapters a day, you can get through God's word in one year. And the majority of Christians have never read the Bible from cover to cover. And so we're going to encourage you to do that. Uh, not just for the purpose of head knowledge, but for application, to live it out and to apply it to your life. And so if you haven't begun, <laughs> let me encourage you to, to know God's word, to apply God's word, to teach God's word, and to live it out uh, for your good and for his glory. Uh, let's pray together. Father.